Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The greatest thing I think you can ever show your daughter is how you can look after yourself as well. If you're asking them to do something you're not doing yourself, it's hypocritical on many levels. It's lovely to be inspired, but equally food can be really simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. And, you know, my parents were both teachers, so the food budget was really strained. So tea was egg on toast. During COVID, the NHS has seen a 68% rise in referrals for young people with eating disorders. And that's referrals. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. My absolutely delightful guest today, Jane Clark, is the founder of Nourish by Jane Clark, a dietitian and Cordon Bleu chef with more than 30 years experience in the nutrition industry, the author of nine best-selling books, including Yummy, Yummy Baby, and most recently, Nourish. She was a regular twice-weekly columnist for over a decade for the Daily Mail, whom she still writes for, Observer, The Times, The Mail on Sunday, and regularly contributes on TV also. She was one of the major forces behind the revolution of the school meals program, which she worked on with the very well-loved and known Jamie Oliver, along with several of his other projects. Her dedication to the cause illustrates so beautifully how people power can bring about social change. It is with the same mindset and passion that she now is leading Nourish by Jane Clark, which provides a solution to the problem of undernourishment and provides empowerment and inspiration to those who are vulnerable or facing a health challenge. Jane was the first person in the UK to open a private dietetic clinic, establishing a highly successful specialist nutrition and dietetic practice in London that has been running for the past three decades. She advises some of Britain's leading sports people, entertainers and media professionals and has been a personal dietitian and nutritionist for, wait for it, David Beckham and Benedict Cumberbatch. She is particularly regarded for her work with those living with serious illnesses such as cancer, neurological degenerative conditions, dementia, depression and stroke supporting patients from early diagnosis right through to end-of-life care across all ages, including paediatric cancers and the early onset of dementia. It is no surprise that Jane was awarded an honorary doctorate for her services to nourishing the vulnerable with her unique combination of clinical expertise and culinary food passion. I had the good fortune to meet with and listen to Jane's inspiring talk at a wonderfully empowering conference for International Women's Day, and I was over the moon when she agreed to come on to the Elevate podcast to share more of her journey and mission to help people of all ages thrive through food. In particular, I was extra keen to share her insights on how we can support 
the increasing number of young girls who struggle with food and maintaining a healthy diet, particularly in their teen years. It is with extreme excitement and great honour that I welcome the excellent Jane Clark to the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, Jane. Thank you very much. And as you can see, I'm back in my humble Cumbrian surroundings. So I've got my beanie on and uh, I'm no for my beanies away from conferences because I have such short grey hair, just like my mum. And so if you'll forgive me, I'm going to continue to wear my beanie. Absolutely. Yes. No, I'm sorry to hear it's so chilly up in Cumbria. I'm hoping that you'll get some of the spring sunshine that we've been lucky to have in London. We should do. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I would love to dive in and get started with understanding a little bit about you, Jane, but mostly as a young Jane, I'm very intrigued to hear what you might or how you might describe yourself as a teenager and what your experiences were like when you were at school. And if you could think back to the years of being an adolescent, what it was like for you, I thought it might be a good place to start. It is actually for two reasons. And I intimated a little bit of the reason when we met in my talk, because um, actually my dad was a chemistry teacher and he taught me for one of my years of chemistry, uh, which actually is some of the happiest times I ever look back on with teaching because dad was an amazing chemistry teacher. And those are in the days when chemistry teachers were able to chuck sodium down the sink and a array oscilloscope and, you know, do all the amazing, exciting experiments. And so that was a lovely thing that I look back on my childhood days. And my mum, who's still with us, is a retired music teacher. And she used to teach music at the school where I went to school. So I was in the lucky on one front uh, position of having my parents at school and um, but that was hard as many of we know what it's like having parents as teachers. And so and I was really badly bullied because of it. Um, so I, I have to say a lot of what I do now is grown from both a place of being incredibly unwell as a teenager and spending many years of my life in total in hospital during that time, but also from being very picked on and realize that, you know, that, but that, you know, they, it formed me as a person and I knew what it was like to be vulnerable as a child, as well as a young adult. Yeah, you've just mentioned so many things here in that one, as little story that you've relayed. I love the fact that you started off with all your positive memories from that time. Um, So you didn't cringe too much every time your dad was at the front. Was he one of the most celebrated teachers because of the fact that he was such a great teacher? Um, And did it make you feel proud that he was your teacher? Yes. Yeah. He he was a, he was really, he, he was sort of probably what we would now call a very old fashioned teacher. He was very um, inspiring. You know, one of the greatest things dad always taught me was to listen and then just think before you answer. And I remember so vividly the, the memories of, you know, putting up your hand and asking dad a question and he'd say, let me think about that. And the pupils were just like, you know, then it built up this excitement and especially over a subject like chemistry. Um, so I hope 
in answer sometimes I just pause and I know I've got that lovely habit from dad and so he was hugely respected and he passed at the end of last year and his funeral we were really lucky that um, we grew up around the corner from where mum and dad still live. Um, obviously, mum is there on her own now. Um, but the funeral, we had 200 people at the funeral and a lot of his old colleagues and his pupils came to the service. Um, and they all just instilled that real, they so loved dad for the amazing teacher that he was. So to have that legacy again back in the community is, is a lovely memory for us. Oh, that's so heartwarming. And I'm sorry to hear about, about your dad in a way that because he's no longer with us, but I, it's so lovely to hear. I feel like I've connected to somebody so fantastic. And I think teachers have a really, and I say that as a teacher myself, but they have a great way of leaving strong impressions on children, particularly with sciences, where some girls do shy away from subjects like that. So how empowering to hear you talk about loving the subject and loving having him as a teacher for your drive in passion for what you do today as well. Talk to me a little bit about the fact that you then somehow have managed to get these incredible talents from both your mum and dad, because you are also, if I'm not incorrect, a really great musician. Is that not true? Um, I Music is my other passion, yes. <laughs> Which is amazing. So your parents have both given you a gift. Tell me about the music side of it. They have. So I learned to play the piano when I was three and a half, started, and then quickly took up the violin, took up the guitar, played in the national youth. Um, so my whole childhood was either science or music. Um, what I loved, actually, and it, I actually didn't get it from my mum because my mum doesn't have it, but I have perfect pitch and I'm able to play by ear, which is is really lovely it's a lovely skill so I, I mean I did think that I would take up music professionally um, because my teen years were very you know the whole thing I wasn't able to do sports at school because I had to protect my hands and um, but then a bit of wise um, advice from my mom was that it's really hard making it in the music world as a violinist because you're not like um, you know a, a, oboist where you know there's um more uh, need for them the competition's really huge and she said why don't you keep your music as your hobby and it's really lovely it's it's a great stress reliever for me I still play and I actually haven't played the violin for many many years because I started in my late teens getting panic attacks when I had started to perform so, you know, you could say, I'll offer you five million pounds. And I, I don't think I could get myself off the starting block, which is a real selfness. And I'm determined to, to conquer it at the age of 55 to be able to do it. But, but for me, piano is, it's a beautiful pastime. And it was, and actually just before we started recording, I just called the care home where my dad was in his late in his later years, um, he was only there for a couple of months, but I always used to love going and playing for my dad. And so I've just arranged to go this coming weekend and play for the residents because music is an amazing way to connect with someone living with dementia as my dad was. Wow, that is so inspiring. Jane, tell me, did, was music also then when you were in the years being unwell as a teen girl and had all the health complications that you did, was music 
a source of solace? Did it offer you support? Was it something you could turn to or were you too ill to even be able to appreciate the instruments and music then? Definitely was a, a place I could turn to. Um, it was hard at times because I was so unwell, but when I couldn't play, it was listening to the music. And one of my greatest struggles was, was with acute pain. And for anyone, whether in whatever ever circumstance, music is an amazing pain relief. You know, just to be able to sit, relax, listen to music. So whether it was listening to music, which I still struggle with at times because numerous music reminds me of, gets me right back, you know, but, but it, at that time, it was an amazing coping strategy for me. And within my world, which became small because I was so unwell, um, I would take, you know, what my little, I mean, you know, I'm now showing my well, my age truly, is we take tape recorders, you know, little Walkmans into hospital. And I would just put the headphones on. And so music was a, a great soother for me and it still is now if I'm going through stressful times music helps pull me through such a great reminder for all of us isn't it sometimes we forget in the world of all the noise that's around us sometimes just sitting with relaxing music or listening to, to um, powerful singers and beautiful messages from, from music can really offer such a nice way of relieving ourselves from that busy and a stressful place sometimes. Um, so I touched on the fact that you spent a lot of your teen years uh, being unwell. Was that then the catalyst that drew you back to the idea of developing ways for people to feel healthier through food? Could you talk to us a little bit about your journey? I had the pleasure of listening to your presentation, so I know a little bit about it. For anyone that may not know you or know your actual path of how you got to where you are today, would you be able to share with us some of those insights? So I guess the starting point was my great aunt. Um, and interestingly, going back to the music thing, um, Auntie May was a beautiful cook. And she was the one that my sister and I always used to love staying with because she was you know, big cozy bed and you'd wake up in the morning and crumpets on the fire and homemade jams. And so, oh, it was lovely, you know. And, and actually the other, the other memory I have of Auntie May is that she used to have big fur coats. So I remember as a young child just running down the drive when she came to stay with us and just burying my head in her in her fur coat and just sort of palm violets, you know, that old fashioned perfume and that side. But her husband, Uncle Tom, was an amazing viola player. And so he was the one that really, along with my mum, encouraged my violin playing and played for people like the Halley Orchestra and that side. So and. Um, food be was a very sensual thing and then obviously dad was the influence of the food was a scientific thing you know and so we I sort of had that combination and then when I realized when I was on the receiving end of horrible hospital food and I was going through really very serious challenges in my own health I saw that what currently was on offer was just dreadful. You know, the food and the way that food was served and the way the food was ever talked about was a big driver to me, pulling myself then through my degree. Um, I did my cordon bleu after I did my degree because I wanted to go back to my food roots. And at the age of 25, I was at last, with my last major surgery, well enough to, to really get on with my life. And I decided that, 
I'd gone through so much and I was at last able to part and sort of forge my way forward that I would do exactly what I dreamt of doing. And it was to create a practice where I listened to my patients and I talked about food in an evocative and passionate way and enable people to really nourish themselves. And that was, you know, we're going back 30 years and it was the first practice of its of its kind. And I love the wholesomeness with which you talk about it. You can hear the passion in your voice when you think back to how it all began. It's it's really incredible. And so you're busy setting up this amazing practice. You've thrown all you've got at it. You know, you worked incredibly hard to make it all come to life. And incredible things start to unfold for you in terms of your career in this industry. So I know one of the great things that you've done, which is with our well-loved and well-known Jamie Oliver, you developed an incredibly rewarding and the first of its kind school meals program. What was it like, A, to be contacted by Jamie Oliver's team and, and work with him? And then tell me how the school meals program uh, came about and what it's done for, for well, loads of young people and what it might be like today and how things have carried on with that. So I was lucky. I got to know Jamie when I was 30. So probably Jamie was about 20. I think he's about 10 years younger than me. And Jamie was just writing his second book. You know, and I've lost count as to how many, but we, you know, we're going back, you know, 25 years. So getting this call from a Jamie Oliver wasn't the same as it getting the call now from Jamie Oliver, you know, so I was lucky that I sort of went and had a cup of tea with him not realizing that I was actually encountering someone that was going to make a difference to many many thousands of people's lives particularly in the school field so I struck up the friendship with Jamie so that was how we started and then so he interviewed me for his second book trying to get the chronology right he I then got to know Jules and some of the children and Jules wrote the forward for a couple of my books, which was lovely. And so got to know the family. And then Jamie said that he was about to take on a project trying to really revolutionize the whole school meal space. And he said, look, I've realized I'm going to be poking a beast um, in the whole politics of school dinners. Um, would you help me? Because he knew that he needed someone that was prepared to go on the Today programme and Radio 5 Live and Women's Hour and to stand up to people who would perhaps criticise what he was trying to do. So I said, absolutely, with pleasure, because he knew I was gutsy. So I didn't mind if I got hate mail delivered to my home. And, you know, I was prepared to be physically and psychologically threatened by the powers that be that wanted us to not disrupt. Because if anyone thinks that the uh, food industry is anything more, you know, less um, uh, toxic, uh, political, um, forceful. You know, we think of the biggies like the drinks industry, the the tobacco industry in its day. You know, food is politics and food is money. Um, and so we had to be really brave. So that was a great thing to to start um, making some real waves. And so it was it was great. And I recorded a series. I think it was Eat to Save Your Life with him, which was great. We had a program together and that was great fun. And then and then, of course, the the wave of the school meals um, ethos uh, really took off. And I think the legacy it still has and the good work that's going on um, needs to still go on. And 
we haven't done enough, you know, that there hasn't been enough in the school meal space, there hasn't been enough in the nutrition space. Um, but it's a big tide that you need to still keep pushing in it. It, it really needs to, a lot of work, but it's we're at least in a better place than we were 30 years ago. No, you've completely revolutionized it, I think, honestly. And I know there was lots of chat about Marcus Rashford, who did great work, I think, during the pandemic when there were lots of children going undernourished. So I think the awareness around healthy eating for children is massively increased. But you're right, there's so much more to do. And we will continue, hopefully, to have conversations like this that will keep pushing parents and schools to think about nourishing children through food in the right way it's really important with as we both know I'm sure about um, and Jamie I know has done a lot of work in the schools uh, with talking about sugar intake and concentration and all the different things that it can affect in a, in a pupil's day because um, he himself suffered from some learning difficulties he talks about quite openly doesn't he with his dyslexia and how sometimes being the the child that can't really quite get it was it was a little bit difficult for him so I think Going on to that, I was going to ask you a little bit about diet, food, and well, because I am also a bit uh, like you, I'm a huge advocate of gut psychology, and I found so much solace in looking at the science behind a healthy gut and what a healthy mind can do, especially with those children that are diagnosed with any kind of neurodivergence. My personal experience with that has been with my own son, who has been diagnosed with autism, and I've taken to a nutritionist who specializes in helping children rebalance some of their metabolism and, and their metabolic rates and the way their certain neurotransmitters are are going and I I'm not sure if that many parents are aware that you can use food as a way to help and maybe those that do hear about it and I could be wrong uh, that's what I want to discuss with you today is do you feel that people are maybe less convinced as they might be about the more robust traditional medicinal and therapeutic routes about helping kids with some sort of illness and disorder and, and getting prescriptive medication rather than using holistic, I don't know if, 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 if diet-ish and, and work is called holistic, but I think it is. I think it is part of the whole approach at looking at how we can improve our, well, I think having a healthy mind and a healthy body. Yes. I think, I think there's a few factors that come into play for parents in particular is that it's it is really sad that I'm still having the conversation 30 years on from setting up my practice that we were having 30 years ago about the relationship between what we put inside our body and how our body feels you know it is you know I was a columnist for 10 years twice a week you know all those columns for the big newspapers and the books and the you know, all the content I've generated, we are still up against a tide of advertising for junk food. And the, I think one of the challenges parents have is obviously we're talking with, as to what age we're talking, it makes sort of different hurdles at different times of life as to the, the age. But I certainly see a lot with parents and teenagers who come to see me is that they're they're having to also navigate the whole social space of eating so that if you are the young person who whose parents care about what they put inside their body and they then care about what they put inside their body that makes you different and therefore that's a, a reason to bully 
to, to make you feel different, to make you feel as if you're not going along with the crowd as to what their peers are eating. Because unfortunately, we are still the minority of people that are able to align what they put inside their body and how they feel. You know, it is, it's still the tip of the iceberg. I wish it was the norm. And therefore, the, the, the young person that was not eating that way would then perhaps be persuaded to come into the fold. But just look at the mass market appeal of the big fast food giants The you know, the, it's it's huge. And you look at the way that it infiltrates their social media world to imply that it's fine to have all these foods all the time. And that's the norm. It's it's really hard for parents to then help support their young person to try and find their way through how do they then still go out with their friends? How do they still go around to their friends' houses if what nourishing food isn't on offer? You know, it is really hard. And then also, you know, we haven't even touched on young women and disordered eating. And if it becomes this huge thing, that then becomes a huge problem. So it is, it's really hard navigating and supporting around the, the massive marketing, the massive availability of, of foods that we know are not great for our young person. And, and we are going to touch on, on that big topic that we just mentioned, but taking you back to being the columnist and the writer, and we talk about disrupting the attitudes and disrupting the beast. And I love the fact that you identified yourself as someone who was gutsy or at least Jamie did and then you agreed to do that I wanted to ask you as a female or were there any issues around you being a female and challenging some of the norms on these some and with some of these other ideologies that were out there when you were writing and I don't know if they were probably called trolls then but yeah like we talked about hate mail or people that wanted to challenge you what was that like for you and how did you build your gutsy attitude to keep going for the cause that you believe in? So thankfully, in the days where I was writing for the, the big newspapers, I still write for the Daily Mail whenever I feel like I, I've got time to write big series or that side or they ask me to do a particular thing. But, you know, if we're going back 30 years ago, thankfully, we didn't have trolls. So social media was not what it is today. And but I still got letters. Um, from angry lobbyists. Um, I also, in my practice, I had like the sugar bureau turning up on my doorstep. I had hate mail delivered to my home when I was doing the big um, school meals project. And I'm really private about where I live um, because my home is my nest and my haven and for my daughter. And so when hate mail was delivered through my door, I thought, yeah, this is getting scary. But luckily, I was writing for the Daily Mail at the time, and they were incredibly supportive of me and everything I was fighting against. So the lawyers backed me up. And so we basically sent a, a letter back saying, comments duly noted, and we shall publish this letter in the Daily Mail and see you back off. You know, so I was really, I've always had great supporters from the newspaper and but that still doesn't take away from that gut-wrenching moment when it lands on your doorstep or it lands in your email. And it is much easier for what I've realised throughout the years is that they generally, and I put they as in people who I criticise, 
try and fight with fire when they realize they're on a very, very low wicket. You know, they're on a really dodgy um, footing. So they try and fight you with so much ammunition, whether it's lawyers, whether it's threats. And I was asked, you know, when we met, you know, do I ever think of giving up and actually rather, you know, I, I, I'm very tenacious and I always think I've just got to keep going because if I don't do it, who's going to do it? So, and I know that it takes guts and there's very little. And actually when you've gone through illness as I did and you've lost people very dear to you, I think, what have I got to lose? Well, thank goodness. Thank you for being here, Jane, and being the person that is leading this amazing fight and disrupting the, the beast. As, as you mentioned, I, you know, what would we do without people like you helping us along? So thank you for that. I also then want to then move on to what we talked a little bit about the day we met in person and what we've addressed a little bit in the interview already, which is the fact that I work with young girls. And I get asked time and time again by parents who want to do right by their girls. Their intentions are so so willingly and so strongly there to help and they want to do the right thing by speaking in the right way around healthy eating choices having said that there are lots of mothers and women who also have complex relationships with food as well so sometimes the role modeling gets a bit complicated and a little bit uh, tricky to and convoluted I suppose but when I get asked to help others especially girls with confidence issues around self-belief and self-love i.e. the body positivity movement and having uh, the concerns when parents feel that they are losing their child and sometimes that even more detrimentally leads on to their children developing eating disorders. Now I know we also said that this is not just girls, we're seeing an increasing number of boys so actually I do have lots of parents who listen to this who do have boys so I'm not going to say this is just for girls, I'm going to say for any young people who are struggling with maintaining a healthy relationship with uh, food, diet, body positivity, could you kindly help us a little bit on how parents might take from your tips and your experience on ways to help manage that? Of course, because I think that if we get this wrong, then we're really heading for a very difficult time in people's lives because we know, you know, we started the interview about my formative years and things that form you. And if you are struggling with eating as a teenager, it's a really hard thing to navigate your way through. And, you know, during COVID, I think the stat is something like the NHS has seen a 68% rise in referrals for young people with eating disorders. And that's referrals. I read a stat where one in three girls is struggling. You know, and I know from personal experience and with many, many patients over the years, the steps and the guts it even takes to even be referred or to ask for a referral is enormous. So this a legacy of this pandemic is that we do have a massive problem with young women, particularly who are very anxious around food and around their bodies. And actually, I was talking this through with Lizelle. We recorded a podcast a, a short while ago and as two mums um, and as a practitioner, I would say the greatest thing I've ever learned as a mum and as a practitioner is to try and play the long game. And 
that it is really hard and it's very easy for me to say it. But I would say that if it feels like a crisis, overeating and the panic that sets in for a parent around whether you've noticed your daughter or son not eating well and maybe avoiding mealtimes and losing weight and exhibiting all the classic signs of really struggling to eat. Stepping back and just saying, how can we look at this as a, a slower path rather than jumping in and panicking and just saying, right, you know, we've got to force them to eat with us. We've got to start piling the calories up because if we don't, we're going to lose them. Um, so and you I would, would say, encourage them. Yeah. You would encourage them to sit with you and have food if they weren't even. I, they didn't. I yeah. would, or I would join them as to where they're eating. Because the meal table can be horribly confrontational. And sitting down with that pressure, the plate full, you know, it's, you know, it makes me feel even, even. Um, childhood memories of being bullied, you know, um, it, it brings it back. And I feel that emotion for every patient I've ever looked after, because it's really hard to sit when there's so much pressure. And we all, you know, we say we've got a frog in our throat when we're anxious. So eating when you're really anxious is hard, which is one of the reasons why I've developed the drinks. But that's, you know, that's a side story. But I think one thing is to serve smaller amounts of food so that you are then encouraging progress from eating a small amount and managing it, not panicking and thinking, right, we've got to get as many calories on that plate to reverse this slide. Small things in a ramekin, small things in a bowl is better than a big plate that's piled high. Don't go for that route. Um, and I say, join them where they're eating. You know, sometimes going out for a meal and going for something like a simple broth and a wagamama type meal where there's other people that can distract you and you can not be wholly focused on the dialogue around the meal. I would say that's one way or just eat something whilst you're watching a movie. So again, the whole conversation isn't, isn't around those glares around the plate. So that would be one tip. I'd also say that something is better than nothing. And if your daughter is happier having a salad with a bit of protein, you know it doesn't have all the calories and everything in it she, her body needs, but it's better than her not sitting with you and not having something to eat and just that slowly, slowly monkey is the way or encouraging her to cook with you. So she builds that confidence up about what's going in the food because distrust is a huge element of a disordered eating pattern. And if they think that you're disguising things or sneaking things in, just step away from that because building that trust over what goes in food, maybe eating the food that she's more comfortable eating as a family, that's another way of maintaining that conversation around food. And if it is a big soup, so what? It's a big soup. And again, if she can get nourishment inside her body, that can fuel her brain, it can help her brain chemistry. And you slowly, slowly, you can build up that conversation around. You're worried that she's not eating some of the food groups that you think she ought to eat. So let's start that. And it could be 
putting a simple amount of pasta into a soup, like a minestrone, you know, start to build a little bit of carb that isn't the big, enormous jacket potato that she needs to plow her way through. And I think that's really interesting. You've mentioned some great tips being a mum or parent or a carer of a young person who might be struggling. In my role as a teacher, sometimes we were asked to watch certain girls whose parents had maybe emailed the school to say we're worried. And we might go and be around them in the dining hall. And I think the girls are quite astute to this and they kind of know. I don't think it works. I wondered if you might have any tips for schools and teachers that are not on duty, but, you know, are are in their professional role, carers of, of these young girls. Are there any things that schools can be doing in terms of bringing in ways that and, and maybe that your drinks is an option here? I don't know if you would encourage that or not, but is it are there any ways as we as, as a society? Because I do believe it takes a village, you know, and I get why parents reach out to schools that maybe we can work together to help parents or is it better to let them do what they need to do at school and let it be? And just you worry, you know, about what they eat before they go to school, when they get back from school and, and what they do at lunch and break isn't such a, it maybe isn't something we should be so stressed about. I don't know. Obviously, every individual case is different. Design is different, yeah. you know, yeah. but I would say that sometimes school can be a solace for someone. If they're getting pressure in the morning, the pressure in the evening, and then they're feeling pressure in the dining room. Where are they meant to go with this? Where are they meant to the emotions I, I would just say and I know you know my daughter's 19 I know what it's like when your daughter is away from you and you're worried that something is not right for her the natural instinct is to I've got to try and take control of this but I would just say to encourage parents to step back and it could be that the drinks that can be helpful or it could be that they just say, look, what, you know, what did you manage to eat at lunchtime? And then why don't we just see if we can make the evening meal nourishing? You know, just or it could be an after meal, after school snack or something that then, but equally the converse could be true that eating at school, if especially if school is really challenging and difficult and, you know, you're picked on in the, in the dining room and you're, then to expect a young woman to then eat what the parent believes they need to eat is nigh impossible. But it's not because the young woman is not wanting to, it's just, you know, school days were really anxious for me when I was really bullied. There's no way I could sit and eat a meal. So it's understanding that, that area. I would just say, keeping that dialogue open between parents and teachers and working together as much as one can in the current climate. And I'd also say for schools to encourage cooking classes for young girls so that they then can also be really creative. And it could be cooking photography classes. It doesn't have to be the traditional home economics. You know, it could be the greatest, best Instagram shot of a beautiful recipe they've made at home. It could be looking at it differently and creatively so that, I think this whole notion of teachers spying on on young people just have to go. It it never works. You know, just I agree wholeheartedly, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up. So I hope that will offer some sort of insight and maybe change in some schools. 
Right. I wanted to talk about this word nourish because I love the fact that your whole company is called that. And I, I think you've chosen the words quite specifically because I do think there it brings a whole different uh, element to what it is that we're doing for ourselves and in, in the wellness space and, and looking after oneself. What do you think are the major benefits or differences between nourishing ourselves and just getting through the day by eating something so you've you know, fueled yourself with something so you can, you can you're not going to pass out, I suppose, because I know protein bars and shakes and lots of things are out there and they're big on the market. And lots of even young people are going towards these things, especially as they start to get into teen years and they want to get the right body shape or whatever it might be. Some more and more people are inclined to fuel, I think, themselves rather than nourish themselves. Um, I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit for us. I guess this goes back to my Auntie May roots, you know, that that it was the you know, Auntie May always, if she is getting warm now, so I'm taking my beanie off. Um, it's all the chat. Ideas, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. For me, it's always been about the ceremony of eating and relaxation. And I'm not saying that we all need to relax about eating, you know, if, or if we had all the time in the world, that would be great. Um, but it could be, it could be the bowl that you serve something in. It could be the, the moment that you share with someone that connects you through food. And I think the whole British tradition of just swallow the food and get it over and done with, you know, is so different to the Mediterranean and the Persian and the so many um, elements of fantastic world cuisine, which has always been about nurturing, you know, from the just traditional chicken soup right the way through to, um, you know, lovely baklava and, you know, gorgeous sweets that you would take around as a gift. You know, in Britain, we were never seen as this foodie society. So I always, that's why a lot of my friends now are not traditionally British, you know, because I tap into different food cultures. So I think that, I think where we've got it wrong is, as you said, you know, food is just fuel. But actually when we have a relaxed gut and when we have those few minutes when we're, off tech and when we're eating what we know is that the gut relaxes and the gut is a muscle and if our muscle is relaxed and able to work it's in its best possible way you absorb the nutrients more so this is where this whole element of nourishing someone is a non-threatening it's not you have to take in these nutrients otherwise it's it's what I've always done with a relationship, with a patient, with a with a word, you know, when I was writing for the Guardian Observer group, I'd always start my articles as it was the food that led me into the health benefits. So it would be as I was, uh, you know, I was watching lovely Stanley Tucci yes. the other day on Italy, and I love that, you know, me too. It's, it's just, I have his book and right here in front of me, taste. It's just amazing. Yeah. So it would start with a, you know, a beautiful buffalo mozzarella and it would just be then leading through. And did you know it's great for your bones? And did you know it's really easy on the gut because it's, you know, in the fresh milk and all of that? You know, so that for me has been always my driver. Um, and it also probably goes back to the days of when I was going through my dietetic degree, I was told forever, I was told off forever for taking too much time with my patients. I was asking them too many questions and talking for too long. And I just say, look, if you don't listen and ask the right questions, how are you going to help? Because we were 
diet sheets of things that you have to eat and what the patient needs to eat or not eat. And I was just going, but that's nothing about that connection with that person. So everything I've done throughout my 30 years of career is about, look, let's just bring about the sensory element. So I think looking at the sensory from a gorgeous mug of Barry's Irish tea that reminds me of doing a Irish afternoon tea at Ballymaloo with Darina Allen and the, you know, my Irish sort of connections. It's that element of what can I do that reminds me of a, something that's a happier memory and also combining it with something that's really easy. Now, I think, I think these sadly has meant shortcuts, as you said, protein bars, protein shakes, all about that you just knock back and then that doesn't help the body. You know, I always encourage anyone with any meal or any drink or any shake, take the moment just to savor it. Then your body will absorb what it needs to. That's gorgeous. What lovely way of thinking about giving our body all the right things and making sure that we make the most of the time that we have with the ingredients and the food and the people around us. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. And I think in the world that maybe we find ourselves in, hopefully maybe the pandemic will have, have given us a new insight into being time poor and people feel that there's just no time to prepare the food the way they do or or it, like me being an Indian mom might spend hours preparing an Indian meal and then it's gone in five minutes you think is that all we've spent eating it and, and you're right it does have its huge benefits to the way your food is digested and then taken in and do what it needs to do I think that's something we always forget about so thank you for sharing that leading on to this idea of nourishing ourselves and looking after those that are unwell I thought that what was really interesting about some of the things I read on your website and some of the blog articles that you have so kindly put out there was the fact that sometimes we get so worked up on caring for those that are unwell a lot of our parents are looking after busy teens who've got sports matches and lots of homework and we're preparing their meals or then people of my generation also have elderly parents and particularly during the pandemic lots of them weren't able to get out and do things and look after themselves so the person looking after those were also not being nourished and or, or not looking after themselves and I wondered if if you had any advice for people that are looking after others because you know the old saying you can't pour from an empty cup keeps coming into mind and I keep wondering how if we don't give that message out to those people that are looking after their busy teens or elderly parents that it's just never going to work in the long run. I absolutely concur with that and it was interesting I I gave a talk to a school a few years ago um it happened to be the school that my daughter went to and they asked me to come and give a talk. And what was particularly shocking at the end of the talk was the majority of the questions were from the young people asking about their parents. Oh, really? Yeah. And what were they interested in? Their their health? Yeah, their health and what they could do um, food-wise to look after, you know, to address X, Y, and Z. And, you know, with many families, I always... Obviously, it depends on the situation, but mums in particular can get in a real quagmire with their daughters over eating. And actually, when, when you ask, as you said at the beginning, is how do you eat yourself? How does your daughter see you eat? What does she see you doing for yourself? And actually, the greatest thing I think you can ever show your daughter is how you can look after yourself as well. Because if you're asking of them to do something you're not doing yourself, it's hypocritical on many levels. 
whether it's how you use your mobile phone or, you know, social media, all of that lot. Food is one way that you show your daughter, your daughter or your son that you're actually looking after yourself because that's the boundary setting. Because then they have a way of then setting their own boundaries as they move on in life. And I think that unless you can stop and try and look after yourself, there's no way that your daughter will ever replicate that good behavior because they're, they just see, well, mom doesn't do it for herself or dad doesn't do it for himself. Yet when they do see the reverse of that and say, actually, mom actually just stops and has a meal and takes that time off the mobile phone, connecting or just taking those few minutes, it's invaluable. And I would say that it's been incredibly tough during the pandemic for parents to look after themselves and their loved ones and their teens. You know, it has been a really stressful time. And the, but the fantastic thing about food is you can get it right within 48 hours. We're not talking about having to get a great skin routine in place that then takes weeks for it to show the results. If you get your food right, you can get it right within hours or within days. So I'd always say, just take each day at a time and just think as a parent, have I got myself into a rut? Have I, am I depleted? Can I just take a morning to just maybe get up a little bit earlier and make myself a good breakfast before the day even hits off? I mean, that's the only way I've ever managed to juggle bringing my daughter up on my own and work. And my business drive is, I'm a really early morning riser because I knew that I, I had to beat Maya to breakfast time. So that it would just be my time in the morning where I just sit and have a good breakfast. And then Maya would get up. And then albeit she's up now at the same time because she's running and doing the things that she's loving to do. But I'd say to parents, just see, could you just create that little bit of time? Just look in the mirror yourself and just see what am I doing for myself? And food is at the center of it, because without the right fuel, your brain chemistry goes off, your sleep gets disorientated, and then you're more likely to then want to binge eat and to get into bad habits moving forward. And I would, the point is that I think that within this Stanley Tucci, you know, all these amazing cookbooks and these travel programs that we see about food, it's lovely to be inspired, but equally food can be really simple. It doesn't have to be complicated and you know my parents were both teachers so the food budget was really strained so tea was egg on toast funny enough I just listened to Delia Smith talk about that on a different podcast she mentions exactly that the simplicity of a recipe can just be an omelette and it can still be very nourishing yeah and the recipe that actually does incredibly well in my my community called cheese fluff and it's basically, it is a slice of toast that you separate the egg yolk from the egg white. You beat the egg yolk, grate in some cheese, and you separately egg, um, have the egg white whisked into meringue, fold it in, pop on the toast, put it under the grill. Then you've got a cheese fluff. And serve it in fingers. And that's lovely to both be for someone who's struggling with their eating. And that could be your parent who is struggling with a sore mouth or anything, or it could be your teenager that's struggling, a few fingers of a really piping hot cheese fluff. Bet my bottom dollar that'll get them off the starting block. Oh, 
<laughs> I'm excited. I'm going straight into that recipe right after our, our interview. That sounds gorgeous. Well, that's really, really great of you, Jane. Thank you for sharing so much of your wonderful work. I wanted to ask something that I ask all my guests. If you could go back today, knowing what you know about everything you've learned through life, and not that you want to change it, but if you could go and whisper something to yourself as a teenage girl, what would you say? Gosh, there's so much. I came across a lovely quote the other day, and I think it was something like, Everything feels impossible until you've made it possible. And keep going. Just keep going. That's so inspiring. And I would love to know what is next for Nourish. Is there a plan in place? Are you going to just keep going with it and see where it takes you? Oh, I'm not a freewheeler. (laughs) I I always have goals. That's, you know, that's the, I guess that's the learning three instruments before. Oh, you know, that's there. So you've got things planned. Absolutely. So we were, we'll have a big announcement. Um, but in essence, it's basically to get the nourished drinks and the nourished product out to as many people as possible so that we are growing our team, which is hugely exciting because um, to nourish someone who's going through a tough time through amazing drinks is, is, is really lovely to be able to do so. So watch this space. It's a really exciting time. Oh, well, I, I can't wait. I hope you'll keep me posted. And I, I, well, I look forward to it. I'll be following along very, very closely. I'm so happy that we connected. I'm so happy that I got to actually look back on thinking about the fact that I actually used your books, Yummy Baby, when I was weaning my children. So actually, I, I, I think the whole journey of being of meeting you in person has been absolutely glorious. I feel extremely inspired by everything that you've created and all that you stand for and I think one of the things I took away from your your inspiring talk is how even the struggles of being a female founder and starting your own business but never losing the alignment with your vision and never selling yourself short with what it is that you believe in and I think if we can inspire many many more young people to completely stay true to who they are and and to their visions and we're then we've got great examples in you to keep that vision going oh well it's an absolute pleasure and I'd also say to every young girl follow your dream absolutely dreams are possible so just go for it oh fantastic and if anyone listening to this Jane would like to get a copy or find out more about your work or get in touch with you to possibly have you as a get your support on the on, on the nutrition side of life where would you direct them would you direct them to your website so go to my website nourishbyjaneclark.com and you'll come through to our team and they'd be delighted to help yes Oh, excellent. Well, I will link everything that we've spoken about today in the show notes for anyone listening. Do look out for all the wonderful work that's going to happen in the world. I'm sure Global Domination by Jane Clark is on its way. (laughs) So thank you, Jane, for being here today. Real pleasure. Hi, it's been a while and I wanted to thank you for your patience. Since the last set of conversations we've released, I've published a book. I hope you already know about it, maybe even have it. I would love for you to share my new book, Girl Elevated, Five Steps to Empower Young Girls to Be Their Best with others, teachers, parents, coaches, your friends, anyone who works or is raising young girls. I hope this resource will be something that will be useful and helpful to many. 
If you have had it and you've enjoyed it, leave me a review on Amazon because that will help lots of other people find this resource as well. Thanks so much for all your support. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestepino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.